0: Hi, I'm Connie Loises.
1: And this is Alex Gove.
0: And this is Strictly VC Download.
1: Happy May Day, everybody. There was a lot of tech news this week. The FANG stocks reported, and among them was Amazon. We order everything from Amazon, so it wasn't really a surprise that the company reported much higher revenues than usual. However, the stock fell 7.5% today, based in part on some of the things that Jeff Bezos said on the call. For example, he said, If you're a share owner in Amazon, you may want to take a seat because we're not thinking small. By that, he meant that the company was planning on investing all of its earnings for the next quarter into coronavirus response.
0: It's interesting, I think shareholders aren't so thrilled about that. At the same time, I wonder what its workers are thinking. Amazon has gotten a lot of grief recently for its response to date. I mean, specifically, it has kept its warehouses operating full steam despite uh, a growing number of COVID-19 cases that have appeared within these centers. It also had fired two employees who were outspoken critics of its climate policies. And these people had denounced conditions at Amazon's warehouses as unsafe. In fact, workers at, I guess, at least 74 warehouses and delivery facilities across the country have been impacted. So there's a little bit of hand-waving here.
1: Well, I think it's a good move. And I think Amazon is playing the long game by investing resources into this COVID issue As you suggest, it's addressing some of its union problems. But it's also laying the foundation for what could be a pretty long recovery from this whole virus issue. Also, there was some good news in its reporting. For example, grocery store sales were significantly up, in part because online grocery delivery has been a big success. Also, cloud computing grew pretty significantly. So the news was mixed, but on the whole, perhaps not as bad as people think.
0: Also, what's interesting is going back to COVID-19, you know, Amazon has been developing its own program for warehouse employees, and it launched the testing program today, in fact. But I thought it was interesting that an analyst on the call asked the company's CFO, Brian Olsovsky, why Amazon decided to build its own testing capability instead of outsourcing it and asked if it could be a new business line, the company didn't say no. They said, we don't know about future business opportunities, but they said, potentially, if we have excess capacity, perhaps we can help in other areas. So even here, in a sense, Amazon could be at work on yet another business line.
1: Turning lemons into lemonade. (laughs) Another interesting Fang storyline this week was an article that appeared in the Wall Street Journal that described... Mark Zuckerberg's efforts to exert more control at Facebook. Over the last year, four directors have left Facebook, including Facebook's independent director. And according to the journal, these board members told their confidants that Zuckerberg was not listening to their advice.
0: I didn't read that article, but I have read in the past that Netflix CEO Reed Hastings had grown frustrated with Zuckerberg. I know that more recently, Ken Cheneau, the chairman and managing director of General Catalyst, who beforehand was the longtime CEO of Amex, was also very frustrated. In fact, was it, I think, last month that he stepped down on the same day that he announced he was joining the board of Berkshire Hathaway.
1: Replacing Bill Gates, I hear. Both Chino and Erskine Bowles, who is a director who parted ways with Facebook, said that Mark Zuckerberg wasn't listening to their advice on political matters. In particular, Cheneau was known to disagree with Zuckerberg's insistence that Facebook should play hands-off with political campaign advertising.
0: I wouldn't classify this as political advertising necessarily, but I did think it was notable. And in fact, the New York Times reported this week that Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube decided not to remove Donald Trump's statements earlier this week, promoting bleach and disinfectants and ultraviolet light as possible treatments for the virus. They said they were basing their decision on the fact that he didn't specifically direct people to pursue these unproven treatments. But as they pointed out, a lot of this stuff has consequences. In fact, in this case, it led to a mushrooming of other posts, videos, and comments about false virus cures.
1: Yeah, I find that sort of disturbing. And also the fact that there is less and less adult supervision at Facebook and no independent director is somewhat worrying for those people who are fearful of Facebook and the control it has over our everyday lives.
0: Sure. Control that seems to be accelerating during this pandemic, most certainly. In related news that I found pretty interesting this week, Reuters had done this story comparing the stances of Mark Zuckerberg and fellow billionaire Elon Musk when it comes to lockdown measures designed to slow the spread of coronavirus. Zuckerberg has actually endorsed the measures, saying we need to be careful about opening places too quickly before infection rates have been reduced. Musk has taken a very opposite stance.
1: Sure, the pandemic, I hate to say, is good for Facebook's business, but for Musk, nobody's buying cars when they can't leave their homes.
0: Sure, he's had to close down his factories, but amazingly, they, Tesla, eked out a profit in the first quarter, nonetheless. I think on $5.1 billion, they made $16 million. Still, instead of focusing on that great news, during an earnings call with analysts this week, he lashed out against stay-at-home orders, saying they are, quote, breaking people's freedoms in ways that are horrible and wrong. And he said, quote, give people back their goddamn freedom.
1: And as if that weren't enough, today he tweeted that Tesla's stock price was too high and that he was going to sell all of his homes and basically forswear all personal possessions.
0: Yeah, it's so strange. I mean... It's really a mystery what's happening with Elon Musk. I mean, he tweeted out a number of things today. One of those things, as you said, was that he thinks Tesla is too high. IMO, in my opinion. Of course, that is not only strange coming from him, but an apparent violation of his agreement with the SEC not to try and impact in any way movement of Tesla stock. I was curious about that one just yesterday. A hedge fund manager who is one of his great antagonists And as a short seller of Tesla, had asked for more information about their earnings, suggesting that there's something awry. And I wonder if he was tweeting in some way to him.
1: Yeah, it was a very cryptic tweet from David Einhorn at Greenlight Capital. He simply said, is something amiss with Tesla's financials or something to that effect? But it really didn't say very much. So it would really be interesting if Musk were responding to that in some way.
0: Separately, I noticed that a former VP of communications at Tesla, Ricardo Reyes, who is now the top communications guy at Dyson, tweeted out today, quote, my Lord, seems Gorilla is way out of his cage. And then he added in another tweet, quote, and knows exactly what he's doing. So I think Musk, as erratic as he can behave, does have an agenda. We'll see what it is exactly.
1: He evidently thinks that he can manage the SEC. We shall see.
0: It really has been a crazy week in news and a lot of it. One other startup-focused tidbit that I noticed today was first-round capital underscoring what it calls its second-round guarantee listeners might know, First Round Capital is a 15-year-old seed stage fund based in Philadelphia with offices around the country, but it wanted to express to founders that it has their back. It said that when it comes to its portfolio companies, it will invest its pro rata stake in any outside-led venture fund up to $3 million, which is great. Obviously, some seed stage companies aren't going to find investors to lead future rounds in this current environment, but I'm sure it makes it easier for tentative investors to move forward knowing that first round will also pitch in.
1: Yeah, I think that's sort of the least that one should expect that an investor will do its pro rata. But first round is codifying that and making a formal declaration that it will do so, which is nice.
0: And it's probably something that others will mimic. I mean, there's nothing VCs like more than to ride a good publicity wave. But enough of the news, coming up next, we had the chance to talk to John McNeil, a former president at Tesla, in fact, who spent two and a half years there, went on to be the COO of Lyft, and has now started a new platform that intends to launch and scale game-changing businesses. He's a really interesting guy. I wrote a story about John earlier this week and was very happy that he agreed to talk with us a little bit further regarding his plans. But first, a word from our sponsor.
1: Coming up from September 14th through September 16th at San Francisco's Moscone Center, TechCrunch Disrupt, the biggest tech event in the industry featuring all new digital passes that allow you to attend from wherever you are in the world. Disrupt Digital Pro and Digital Startup Alley passes will give attendees access to exclusive content Beyond the Disrupt stage, the ability to interact with speakers, and the opportunity to participate in Crunch Match, where you can network with your fellow industry attendees in advance of the event. You won't want to miss this special once-a-year event. To register, check out techcrunch.com slash disruptsf. That's techcrunch.com slash disruptsf.
0: So John, thank you so much for joining us today. We talked a bit about your background for a TechCrunch story that I wrote earlier this week. You were, as you said, a young kid out of college working at Bain and Company. They were having you analyze deals and a partner suggested to you, based on your feedback, that you might be more suited to becoming an operator than an investor. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that's right. I started Bain on the consulting side, and uh, it was a lot less glamorous uh, than even working on deals. Uh, my first assignment was working in a meatpacking plant. And the only upside of that case was I got to work alongside Dave Goldberg, who became a lifetime friend. And we happened to sit outside of a conference room where the software side of Bain Capital was just getting started, and they really didn't have any staff, a junior staff. And so Myself, Dave, and a couple of others got asked at the end of every day if we could uh, if we could help run some numbers on deals. And so that led to me spending more time working on those types of things than consulting after a couple of years at Bain.
0: That's great. So I know that you went on to start a number of companies. I also just wanted to make clear to listeners who might not know, Dave Goldberg was the CEO and co-founder of SurveyMonkey, a now publicly traded company, and also the husband to Cheryl Sandberg.
2: That's right, Dave. Is just a uh, was a wonderful guy, and Dave and I were emblematic of what was happening in Bain d- during that time. There were a lot of it turns out future entrepreneurs there, and we bonded over startup ideas. And we would trade these ideas back and forth. Dave had this idea in the media business and music business. I had a couple of ideas in the consumer business. And so as we both spent more and more time on our startup ideas, I was working more and more with some of the folks in the Bain Capital part of Bain. And had a seminal meeting one day where we were in a pitch session with a team, we walked out of the pitch session and the partner on the deal said, what'd you think? And I said, I think I'd like to go back to the office with that team. And he said, why? I said, because I think what they're working on is really super interesting. And the partner said, well, have you started a company before? And I said, yeah, I actually started a few in high school and a few in college. And he stopped and said, hey, look, I think you you should really think about the signal you're getting. And I kind of said, well, what signal? And he said, well, this is a gross generalization, but I find that people are either investors or operators. And if you're hearing the call of the operator and being an entrepreneur is a high form of being an operator, you got to listen to that. And so I asked folks that I knew in Bing Capital to hand me any business plan that they saw that was too small for us to fund. And then if I found one I liked, I would jump out and pass the hat and start a company. And that actually ended up happening a few months later. A great business plan came through. And so I passed the hat and jumped out and started my first company.
1: And you founded five or six companies in total. What led you to Tesla?
2: I started five companies from zero and we scaled them and we were lucky enough to sell them to public companies. And then what led me to Tesla was actually my friendship with Dave and Cheryl. After Dave passed, Cheryl introduced Elon and I. And that's how I was introduced to Elon and and Tesla. And uh, Elon was looking for somebody to take on the business side of Tesla. And so I joined uh, in that role with responsibility for the revenues and marketing and sales and service operations and auto finance and government relations, a a bunch of stuff that was essentially not engineering and not manufacturing.
0: John, what was it like working with Elon Musk?
2: To me, it was fascinating. He's the best practitioner of my craft as an entrepreneur. It's hard to name another entrepreneur who started four companies, all of which are worth more than $10 billion in market cap. Several were worth more than 50. And so we were in hyper growth mode and there were no playbooks. Like we literally, when I started, the company had about $2 billion in annual run rate revenue. And three years later, it had $20 billion in annual run rate revenue. And so it went from $2 billion to $20 billion in just over three years. And there are no playbooks for that. And so we were innovating constantly to either try to get ahead of that growth or just keep up with that growth.
1: Is Tesla where you first started thinking about the idea of perfect product, which you talk about in your Medium post?
2: It is. Elon, one of the things i I learned from just being around him and observing him was how much time and energy he put into pursuit of the perfect product. And that then was contagious. It was contagious to all of us who were around him. It was contagious to the engineers who were working on the product. It was contagious to people who were customer facing in the market that would bring feedback back to us from the marketplace in really fast feedback loops. And the mantra was, if we can produce the perfect product, then it will sell itself. That was the goal in the sense that we wouldn't have to use paid marketing and advertising, that uh, we could use virality and organic methods of growth versus having to pay for it. And so it was my first exposure to perfect product. And now I've gotten that religion. I'm a firm believer because I saw what was possible at scale if you've got an organization devoted to continually making the product better and not releasing the product until it's, it's just awesome you don't have to wait for it to be perfect. But if you release something that's awesome and keep improving on it, in the pursuit of perfection, it's super inspiring to be in an organization like that.
1: I think it's really remarkable that you guys didn't spend any money on paid marketing. But yet at the same time, the financial markets just didn't get it. And Tesla was the subject of a huge short seller interest. What was it that the financial short sellers didn't get about Tesla and
2: There are clearly segments of investors in the market, and there were longs that certainly got it. And those longs have been in the company very early and have stayed committed, and they've been well-rewarded for that. There were shorts that I think didn't understand, largely because many of them hadn't experienced the product firsthand. And it's amazing how many of them converted and changed their views as they got to know the product and, and started to use it themselves. But I think what some of the short sellers didn't understand was the, was the consumer poll how passionate consumers were for, uh, for the product, how much they wanted an electric and clean product. So much so that uh, our most common trade-in was a Toyota Prius. And that car retails for around $30,000 or low 30s. And uh, this was a time before Model 3. Uh, in our, uh, and so we had owners of cars trading uh, trading in a car and buying up to a car. A lot of times it was double the value of the car they were trading in. And it's because they had this aspiration to own a car that was the safest car, the fastest car, et cetera. I don't think the the market understood the demand pull, certainly didn't understand how our unit economics were different because we didn't have to spend two or $3,000 per vehicle advertising, didn't understand that, that the product didn't depreciate like other cars, because we're literally making it better with every over the year update. And I don't think they understood the value of having a vertically integrated manufacturing and supply chain. All those things were hard to see from the outside, but incredibly powerful when combined into one business model.
1: You were at Tesla for two and a half years. What were some of the changes that you made? And what were some of the decisions that you had to make that you had to convince Elon to get behind?
2: I think there were changes we were making constantly as a team across the business. And I was a part of an incredible executive leadership team. And, and Elon was right in the thick of this with us, as were the teams that reported to me. And so we were changing our digital go-to-market, which started with dozens of clicks to buy a car. And eventually, you know, we ran into the root cause of that uh, was uh, was often in the financing part of the transaction where people had to fill out and sign pages of loan or lease documents and title transfers and things like that. And so Elon gave us the the challenge one day to figure out how to do a one-click lease, which when I went to uh, the the financing community, banks, and other sources of capital, they said, that's crazy. We pushed the envelope and found a couple of great banking partners who helped us essentially invent a a one-click lease and take enormous friction out of the purchase process which then caused more and more transactions to happen online versus in-store. And we were working on our go-to-markets uh, and our delivery methodology. We invented mobile service when we discovered that we could do 80% of the repairs we were doing in a service, we could actually do that in somebody's driveway or in their office parking lot. And so we did a massive shift to mobile service, which allowed us to scale without nearly the capital we would had to scale and time to build service centers. We were experimenting and improving in our manufacturing and our delivery techniques just across the board. We recognized that you could create recurring revenue on a car if you actually sold the insurance. And so Tesla insurance was spawned out of that notion. There were dozens of things that were happening so that we could not only survive, but then also start to thrive.
1: Given Tesla had such a compelling product, why did you decide to make a shift after two and a half years and go to Lyft, which was spending a lot of money on paid marketing?
2: It's a great question. One of the things I hadn't done in my career is taken a company public, and that was a really attractive part of my decision to go to Lyft. The additional thing was I shared the vision that the Lyft founders had, which was imagining a city with far fewer cars and knowing that. 90% 90% of ride share begins and ends within dense urban markets. It's largely not a suburban product as much as it is an urban product. And if you could get car sharing happening at a broad scale, you could reduce the number of cars that were on the road. That then reduces the amount of pollution that is in cities, which reduces the number one cause of lung cancer in cities, which is auto emissions. So that to me was like really important and, and something that I, I really wanted to work on to see if I could Help change the urban landscape of cities, and I had a hunch that if we could change and improve the product, that Lyft could spend less on pricing and promotion and paid acquisition of both drivers and uh, and consumers.
0: John, I guess ultimately, do you think Lyft and Uber have caused less congestion or created more of it? There is obviously the argument that people now who would have taken the bus will do a ride share instead.
2: Yeah, I think given the pricing, it's actually not people hopping off of public transit into a uh, into a rideshare. The pricing is people that would normally take a car solo are commuting more and more in shared rides, and that's what reduces congestion. But it's a long journey to get to that endpoint, and so there is a point in that adoption curve where because you're adding more and more single car rideshares, that you increase traffic. And so basically, the adoption curve is people try rideshare as a solo rider. And then over time, you convert them to be a shared rider. And as you convert them to shared, then it's when you can start to pull cars off the street. And if you can get them into shared electric vehicles, then that's a super compelling vision of the future.
0: Right. That's a very important facet of the overall vision. John, I also wanted to ask, you talk in your Medium post about product market fit, go-to-market fit. You say Lyft didn't necessarily have the latter, in part because its customer acquisition costs were so high. Do you think that the company has solved that? Do you think these companies will ever be able to completely rationalize their businesses? I love them as a consumer, but I always wonder at what point will they make real money?
2: Yeah, I think there's a a, a real shift that's happened over the past year, and that is the early chapters of the Uber and Lyft competitive battle were based on price and really trying to knock one or the other out of the market. And so they were pricing irrationally. Over the past year, I think they've both gotten religion on how destructive that is. It's destructive to the economics of the business and destructive to the TAM and not sustainable. And so as they have now started to price rationally, their growth rates come down, which was one of the factors that held them back. Their growth rates have decreased. However, they now have a path to profitability. And that does lead to sustainable economics in the business. So yeah, I do think with rational pricing, there's a long future and a bright future for that business.
0: And John, I want to move on to your next endeavor soon, but I did wonder with Lyft and Uber, obviously we're seeing both of them cutting back the information reported yesterday that Uber is likely to lay off 20% of its staff. Lyft today announced some layoffs combined with the coronavirus. We have this very likely shift that more people will be working from home rather than riding into the office. How do you see their prospects going forward?
2: Yeah, I think there's a there's definitely a post-corona vaccine and therapeutic world that maybe looks different from the mid-step that we'll be in for the next few months. And that is, I think, yes, volumes will be down and, until there's a therapeutic or a vaccine. I think as we get closer to people being less worried about corona and their health, I think... It, Folks, although we've discovered that work from home is definitely viable, it's it, it for a lot of us isn't optimal, uh, and um, and I think uh, for many human beings we're uh, we're pack animals, uh, and we have a need to uh, to be with our pack, uh, and um, and be for my in my case in the office uh, working alongside uh, of teams is a is a is a really important part of uh, of of, of my work life. And, um, and so I think we will see probably different commute patterns for the next few months. Um, but then, uh, then I, I do think as people start to, uh, start to come back into office environments, we will, uh, we'll see largely, uh, a return to normal commuting, but I I do think that's going to be constrained by a vaccine, uh, and or a therapeutic.
0: Great. Thanks, John. So speaking of your office, tell us what you're up to now. You've created this new organization slash company slash fund, although I saw that in your Medium post, you didn't really refer to it as a fund, but it's sort of a, an evergreen entity. And if you could sort of walk us through what this is, Delta V.
2: Delta V is, it, it, it starts with a, a first principle. It was based on a question, and that is, can you create a company that can create companies repeatedly over time? And that was born from just a disease that I share with a lot of entrepreneurs, I think, and that is we've got an idea disease. And I've had three or four business ideas that I've wanted to start that have been on hold while I was busy at Tesla and Lyft. And I started to explore, could you create a company that could create companies? And as I did that, I I spent a lot of time with accelerators, incubators, venture studios, foundries, hatch platforms, etc., and ended up spending time with the team at Sutter Hill and the team at Flagship Pioneering, both of which have emerged as the best in this category in terms of the long-term success rates of creating companies. And both have created, in combination, north of 100 companies. Both have taken more than 40 of those companies public, sold more than another 40 of those companies. Their returns over time look very different from a typical venture return model, which is trying to get one home run in 10 or 20 bets. They were getting five to seven out of 10, and it's sometimes better. And as I spent time with them, their model really resonated with me as what I'd experienced as a serial entrepreneur in creating companies repeatedly. Once you start to do that repeatedly, you see a pattern emerges with how you create the infrastructure and replicate that infrastructure, but also how you define product, go to market, get world-class teams together around those products and create a business. And Sutter Hill and Flagship had done that in very different spaces in the data center and in uh, life sciences. And I thought that could be done in consumer tech. And so we're creating Delta V, which is change in velocity, to be a platform, a company that essentially creates companies. As you mentioned, it's different than a fund in that we wanted to build long-term businesses and we wanted to be the primary owner of those businesses. So rather than having a fund, we formed a holding company. The source of capital is both ourselves and outside investors. Mm -hmm. We sit side by side in the capital structure as owners of the companies we create. And we'll likely raise outside capital as these companies grow, but the goal is long-term ownership so that we're growing companies at an appropriate rate and pace, and we're not doing unnatural things to grow a company to get a markup so we can raise our next fund. We didn't want to get on sort of the two-year treadmill that typical venture funds are on.
1: Is there a carry structure in traditional VC terms?
2: There isn't. So because we're shareholders, we all are compensated by the success of the share values of the companies we create. So it is a no-fee, no-carry structure where you've got almost perfect alignment between the external sources of capital and the people that are part of the holding
1: company. So your stake in the company is dependent on how much capital you personally bring to the venture. I'm just a little bit confused about how you guys pay the rent, how you incent your teams is there a pool for management? Can you just explain a little bit more of some of the details?
2: Absolutely. So the capital structure, I think, is similar to the way a lot of these evergreen funds are set up in that much like starting a company, which is what we're doing, you have a pre-money valuation and a post-money valuation. You're raising on that pre. As we raised external capital, the portion of the uh, of the post that the external capital represented is their percentage ownership in the, uh, in the company. And while we did the raise uh, simultaneously, we created a pool for management and employees of the platform, the company, which is a, a really cool feature for the engineers and go-to-market teams and marketing teams and, and entrepreneurs who work on the platform. And the, rather than having a typical employment situation where they're, just, they're at a company and they're getting one shot on goal in terms of their stock, here they're going to get a portfolio of shots on goal, so multiple shots on goal. And it's a really attractive place to work if you're an entrepreneur, because you're essentially getting a venture partner economics.
0: John, it sounds like a really smart setup. You mentioned Sutter Hill and their success over the years. You mentioned flagship pioneering. I wonder why aren't more companies or funds set up this way? I think this comes up occasionally and people think, oh, it's a really great idea. And then again, we don't see a lot of traction on this front. Why is that? And I guess for whom would this sort of structure make the most sense?
2: I think, A, these structures tend to be rather quiet. And so there are very, very large platforms now that are structured this way. WonderCo is one and there are a number of others. A lot of them say that the reason why this isn't more broadly spread is because it doesn't work for all the kind of uh, typical LPs that you would see in a in a venture fund. Because these are long-term holds, it may not work for the type of LPs that need liquidity like a university endowment, like a retirement pension fund, et cetera. And so I think for funds that have been established for years, it's hard to walk away from LPs that you've courted over time and say, hey, we're going to pursue a different model because so much what's and tears have gone into creating that LP base. However, I think the flip side of that is this structure is really attractive to long term investors. It's attractive to family offices. There are some endowments and pension funds that do have long-term allocations to this type of structure because it not only created some superior returns, but the post-tax returns are very attractive as well because at a minimum, you're getting long-term capital gains. But for these entities that are creating companies, there's also additional tax benefits at the company level. So the post-tax returns are incredible, but does require an investor orientation that doesn't require... um, Uh, high high frequency of liquidity events and realizations.
1: When you talk about a long-term hold for LPs, how long do you mean? And do LPs have the right to withdraw their money whenever they want? Well, LPs
2: own shares. And so their LPs can sell those shares back to the company. They can sell those in certain circumstances on the secondary market. Some of these uh, kinds of entities have in their roadmap to go public and get liquidity optionality for their investors in that sense but it's not like a hedge fund where you've got certain windows to call your capital back or request your capital back. You're literally a a shareholder owner, and you've got different options to pursue if you want to get liquid on those shares.
0: John, when we talked earlier earlier this week for that TechCrunch piece, you mentioned that you already have four startups in the works, including one that should be out of stealth mode by early summer and another this fall. One you said was an automotive service startup, which I think is interesting. And you wouldn't tell me more, unfortunately. And the other is a price optimization startup. In terms of who will lead these, I assume it's your co-founders who will kind of serve as interim CEOs over time. And then in terms of growing the companies, how will you vet potential CEOs? I mean, are you open to talking to people from now?
2: Yeah, so the, it, as you said, like the first few businesses are, are led by uh, one of the partners on the Delta V platform who acts as the interim CEO. In the case of the first few businesses, there are people t- uh, from teams that we've worked on. It's one of the advantages of being operators and that we've had the, the benefit of having worked with just world-class people over time who are highly capable. In some occasions, they've actually proven that they can start and scale businesses like they're going to be pursuing at Delta V. Over time, we will expand, obviously, from the startup teams to scaling. And, you know, we fully intend to attract the best talent in the world we can to help scale and grow these businesses. And we'll tap our own personal networks for that. And, we'll, uh, and I'm sure we'll reach well beyond that uh, to try to cast a wider net. One of the encouraging things that, that I found as I talked to other platforms like this is there's a surprising number of highly capable executives who are really hungry for this kind of opportunity, but they don't have their own idea for a startup. So it's a little bit like me when I started. I needed to find that first business plan to kind of get rolling. I didn't have an idea that I was comfortable jumping out and starting. And luckily, I was able to cross paths with somebody else's idea. And we kind of want to do that here, give really capable leaders an opportunity to intersect, cross paths with an idea and potentially hop in and lead that, uh, lead the growth of that company. And so free them from having to come with an idea. They can uh, deploy their skills against, uh, against an idea that's already in place and to a certain extent is vetted.
1: Is part of your model also raising outside capital from other VC groups? And if so, what sort of ownership and influence can they have at a company that's been founded by Delta V? Our
2: goal with each of the companies is to provide the seed in the Series A and bring them to the doorstep of the Series B, at which point we will raise external capital and hope to attract value additive sources of capital, whether it be venture funds or other kinds of funds. And so, yeah, the short answer is we will work with venture funds on each of these companies and we'll partner with them from series B onwards and in, in building really important and, and long-term durable companies together.
0: John, I want to let you go. You've been so patient with us with our technical hiccups here, but I did want to ask, is Delta V a company itself that could go public someday? Is that of interest to you?
2: That is clearly one of the options is is with this structure, Delta V is a company and it is a company that could go public. And so that that's one of the, uh, one of the options for shareholders. I hope we're going to be lucky enough to have that choice. That's fully dependent on us creating and building and scaling great companies.
0: Well, I can tell you based on that TechCrunch story and the number of people who viewed it, there's a lot of interest in what you're building there. So I wish you a lot of success and I hope that we can stay in touch.
2: Thanks, Connie and Alex. Alex, really nice to talk to you.
0: Thank you so much, John. Take care. You too.
1: And that's it for this week's episode. A special thanks to John McNeil for putting up with our very awful internet connection.
0: (laughs) Yes. Thanks, John. And thanks everybody for listening. Have a great weekend and week.